0: God, what are you
1: Fuck, what is this? Oh, that's the one that's loose. Fucking from that, and I'm trying to.
0: Okay. Oh, uh, you know, It's a. I feel it's a product issue because after a point, it just starts to sag.
1: Yeah. Mm. Like us, yeah, but. Uh, <laughs> This? I was like, I did not expect this to happen here, it should happen elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let us do this. Episode 21. Yeah.
0: Welcome back to episode 21 of Two Please. I'm your host, Abhin. And I'm your co-host, Rohit. And like we said on last week's episode, we would be discussing the Quentin Tarantino films. And we have stayed true to our word. We are discussing the Quentin Tarantino films, specifically two of them. I would consider these two to be my favorite Tarantino films. Actually, I would, um, I, I'd say once upon a time in Hollywood comes a close second, close third, but I would, if someone were to ask me, what are your two favorite narrative driven Tarantino films? I would definitely say Inglourious Bastards and The Hateful Eight.
1: And I think it's, um, Another yet another validation of why uh, you and I should be doing this podcast together mm. is because uh, even without you, before you asked me, uh, even if you were to say our, our <laughs> movies out loud together, I would have said the same to Inglorious being my favorite. And I am guessing Hateful at uh, a close second.
0: Mm. Again
1: here, initially we wanted to discuss Tarantino at large, Abhin and I. Then we realized uh, each of his movies uh, have enough depth to merit their own episode. There's a lot to talk about, and uh, also from a podcast planning perspective, uh, I feel Tarantino is a mine we would want to plunder again and again. So
0: mm-hmm. I
1: didn't want to, we didn't want to blow our ward just in one episode, so to speak. So this is just one of uh, what I'm guessing are many episodes on Tarantino. So yeah, like I've been said, we're going to discuss two movies today: Inglorious Bastards and after, hateful eight after eight. Why did say after eight? Hateful eight. <laughs> we could all use some after eight right now. No, after, after.
0: <laughs> that's 8 p.m. 8 8 At the moment I said it, I was like, oh shit, it's 8 p.m. It's not after eight. Yeah. yeah. Disgusting thing. Anyway, yeah. for the international listeners, if there are any, 8, 8 p.m. is like one of the lower rungs of, uh, of whiskey that we have in India.
1: It's
0: three dollars for a full bottle. Wow, I like how all right. Controlled ward explosion aside, let's start the show. I am big, it's the pictures that got small. Hello again, we are back and we are talking Tarantino, everyone's favorite foot masseuse turned director, sometimes, often, no, it was also a video store clerk right at one point or like had his own thing in, on Manhattan Beach in, in, in California. So a little bit on Tarantino, I mean, before we get started, so what was the first Tarantino film you watched? And we'll try and keep this as brief as possible. What has your experience been with him to up to this point?
1: I think the first Tarantino movie I watched was Pulp Fiction. Hmm. I think it was so much in the zeitgeist, it was hmm. hard to avoid. Hmm. Um, Abin knows my my feelings about Pulp Fiction. I think that's better discussed in more depth in another episode, but I don't like hmm. it. I don't think the movie has a point. I understood the the stylized approach, the treatment he has to his work. And it is so steeped in pop culture references and pop culture knowledge. I get the appeal. But uh, a lot of his other works uh, have a flavor of that, but also have a much more coherent storyline. So I enjoy them a lot more. Yeah, I've seen Kill Bill. I've seen the Kill Bill movies once. I watched Jackie Brown once. There's Oye Dogs I watched a couple of times. Uh, Again, another. Amazing movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's the newer movies, *Inglorious* and onwards, that I've watched um, many more times. Uh, surprisingly, I think the movie i watched most is Hateful Eight. But also, that's not just because I love the movie. Um, I remember, I don't know why I had a phase somewhere around 2016 when I was, just joined work. I used to really enjoy coming back from a long day at work and just put on Hateful Eight and let it play and just... Mm. Like you like it's a very stagey play sort of uh, yeah movie and to let the dialogue run. Too, there's not much that you have to visually follow. People exactly. You to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to have run in the background, listen to the and again as usual his dialogue is amazing. So yeah, uh, I guess that's why I ended up watching it a lot of times. So mm-hmm. yeah, that that's been my uh, Tarantino journey. What about you? So um, for my first experience with Tarantino was. I mean,
0: I'm I'm a '90s kid, born '91, '92. I mean, '91 basically. And um, so, my first run-in with Tarantino was with his Kill Bill series, uh, because I was like, "Oh, why is Umar Thurman in a in a yellow jumpsuit, um, mm. holding a katana?" This intrigues me. And then, obviously, that was those were the Linkin Park years, right? And Linkin Park dropped. Uh, a music video for Breaking the Habit. And I was like, oh, this is a great, very interesting music video. And then somebody had said, oh, you should check out Kill Bill because the same, the animation director for mm-hmm. Breaking the Habit has done a whole sequence in Kill Bill. And uh, I was really getting into anime at the time. Uh, just obviously for us, it was we'd gone from, you know, the Dragon Ball Zs and the Dragon Balls to... Oh, what is um, oh, what is sword art online and what, what is Evangelion and just the whole, and so Gundam this was like the first few years we were like okay, this anime exists outside just Goku yelling for um, six episodes so I was like, I, I was intrigued by, by what was uh, you know, by, by, by that whole um, space and so I was like, "Cool, I'm going to check this movie out." And then I watched Kill Bill Volume One. It was extremely gory, and <laughs> my father will not be pleased because I actually, when he was renting the film, I <laughs> I watched it the day when he was out. Sorry, Pa. Uh, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is great! What what, uh, what an amazing uh, uh, story! What an amazing film!" And then a few years later, around 2007 2008, I had I watched Pulp Fiction. I was like, when I was really getting into film, I, I ended up mm-hmm. watching Pulp, Pulp Fiction and um, then it became, a oh, I have to track down all of the Tarantino films and watch and watch Reservoir Dogs because we've done, we've spoken about this on a previous episode because it was remade into a movie called Kante. And, yeah. and, then, and then by then we had been to enough quizzes and hung around enough people to understand just how huge Tarantino was in the space. Because I'd say 2006 to 2007, it was the, it was the fight club of times. Because where everyone was like, oh, you've seen Fight Club, watch Fight Club. And so, generally, Fight Club, Pulp Fiction, and I think there's one more than film, and it'll come to me at some time during the podcast. If you randomly hear me yell a movie uh, out of the blue with no context, you'll know that's the film I'm talking about. Um, yeah, so that's, and and so by the time English Blasters rolled around I was like okay I am hyped for this film because as much as I didn't appreciate Jackie Brown the first time I saw it I saw it again many years later I was like oh wow this is actually a really nice film Um, and and then of course The Hateful Eight rolls up in 2015 and for and much like you I particularly enjoy that film because it's so conversational It, it all takes place in a cabin right and
1: Haberdashery, the haberdash, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Minnie's haberdashery. So uh, and that should actually not be. I mean, it's. I loved contained space, uh, contained space films because there's so much tension and it can go so wrong if you don't get it right. The hit late is uh, is definitely one of my more enjoyable Tarantino films, but. I'd still say the top spot goes to Inglourious Bastards, which I think is a great place for us to begin on. So what we'll do is we'll break this down into two parts. Rather, we'll one episode. We'll the first half of this episode will deal with um, Inglourious Bastards, um, how we discovered it, what uh, we think are the absolutely astonishing things it does, and um, yeah, just basically it's going to. Uh, we'll, we'll break the film down into, into different sections and 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 discuss it in detail. And then we'll give hatefully the same treatment as well. Um, so, shall we begin for a second time? <laughs> uh, okay, so English <laughs> Bastards. I found this on a bootleg DVD in 2009 because I was afraid it wouldn't make it to theatres and that I would heard it was really gory and the Indian censor boards were in particularly kind to of gory films at the time. Um, mm. Where
1: did you find it? Yeah, I mean I I not in bootleg like I straight up pirated it. So and uh I mean, more to your my point on uh, having been a lot more aware of Tarantino's work after we got into quizzing. I mean if you fancy yourself to be a quizzer with any measure of competence in end quizzes, mm-hmm. if you if you don't watch Tarantino movies, there's no way you're gonna make it into the finals, right? Like yeah, Quizzers love questions on Tarantino And there's so much to mine like, There's so many references There's so many callbacks And backstories um, In a lot of his work So, And 2009 was when Tarantino uh, I, I mean when, when Inglorious Bastards Had come out And it was around the time When we also were seriously Getting into quizzing mm. And I remember uh, Everyone talking about it Because I think Death Proof Was the last movie he had. Again, if you count Death Proof As a movie Otherwise uh, the previous movie uh, The movie before that Was Kill Bill Volume 2 So this was like A long break Between his last movie And this one mm.
0: He so... directed a, a Segment in Sin City Right If I'm being If I remember correctly There is The segment in the Alleyway is him Sin City is Robert uh. Yes And uh, uh, And there's a segment In That involves Benicio del Toro uh, And Rosario Dawson In an alleyway And I think that That was all mm. him Oh uh,
1: so, but yeah, like, uh, I mean, the the segment apart, this was mm. like highly anticipated. And like he said, I think at some level, he himself knew this was some of the best work he'd done. So he himself was drumming up a lot of publicity for the movie. Mm. And all of that coalesced us getting into quizzing, rediscovering or like re-appreciating Tarantino, his movie coming out in that very same year after so mm. many, after such a long time, mm. it was just like when, when, The movie finally came out and I downloaded it. It was like edging, right? Like you you held on to it for so long. Wow. It's going to explode at some point. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So for those of
0: you listening to this on audio, because how else are you listening to this? I have my face in my hands. Every time Rohit makes like a weird (laughs) analogy, Wow, I never thought Edging would make it onto this podcast, but it somehow has.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's how oh. I discovered uh, Inglorious. But um, let's dive into what you, what are the things you like about the movie? And I think before we do that, uh, something we just like to call out right at the front. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: While like, we're not uh, trying to be very Tarantino ish, and uh, as Abhin will testify, believe us, we, we tried doing that. And <laughs> the, had to scrap that entire scratch because yeah. it really wasn't working. Yeah. Uh, we're not trying to be Tarantino-ish and be too non-linear. We're going to dissect the movie as in as straightforward a manner as possible. It's just that the start of the movie is something something uh, which really stands out is is a is a peg above the rest of the movie mm-hmm. and something you want to give a little more time and attention to. So we're going to keep that bit for the end, but uh, save for that, uh, thoughts, mean.
0: Yeah, barring the opening sequence, which is, I think, a good 16 to 18 minutes long. um, Everything else in the film is absolutely amazing. Um, I'd go go so far as to say even Tarantino thinks it's probably his best work. Um, Mm. Because Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and that is a movie I really like uh, and not for the reasons why everyone else does. I think it's a great bromance movie. It's about two dudes who have Struggling to find themselves in um, in a new era, or like just basically, they feel that the world that they know so well is passing them by. Um, mm. Leo DiCaprio is being pushed towards Italian spaghetti westerns, and he's he's considering his own his career path. Um, and Cliff Booth, his stuntman, is now moving into an era where they don't really need uh, stuntmen, or rather, his his career is so dependent on Leo's career because and he's just trying to figure out where he fits uh, in the world as well. And as much as it's a fun movie, there's it's not really a lot happening narratively. It's I feel it's just Tarantino mm-hmm. saying, this is the 60s and the 70s I grew up in. Um, and, and this is a story I've written around it. Inglourious is a lot more narrative driven and by which I mean, it has one single uh, objective that is there is a plot to kill Hitler, and there are two separate groups of people who try to do it without knowing that the other one is attempting to do the same. So on one side, you have the bastards who are a, um, a, who are in a small troop of soldiers from America who have been dropped into Nazi-occupied France to hunt down Nazis, scalp them, and continue to instill fears in the ranks of uh nazi, of uh, nazi troops across the country and hitler is particularly pissed about it there's the whole sequence where hitler is ranting about the existence of the bast- of the bastards in particular uh about one person named the bear jew and so i'd say <laughs> a small little detour here so the bear jew is played by eli roth and the thing is eli roth rose to Uh, prominence in 2005 uh, with Hostel which for many of us was like oh my god what the fuck is this this is absolutely disgusting uh but it was a hit with audiences it garnered two sequels The, the third I think is complete ass people argue that the second is probably the best of the series even though it didn't do too well and wasn't received too well um but Eli Roth was um he's a pretty famous director and i never pitched him to be an actor I never thought he was an actor and then he shows up in this uh in one of easily one of the most memorable performances in the last 20 odd years uh and i don't think that's down to him as much as it's down to the writing because you have Til schweiger who plays uh captain hugo Stricklitz. And Stieklitz. He, Stieklitz, and even he is is so good in this film, and he's. And I think he was in Far Cry before this, so <laughs> which is a movie that I have not seen, and uh, and so and it just neither, yeah. So there are a few performances in this film that absolutely elevate the script, but it's usually the script doing the heavy lifting for most of the actors in the movie. I'd say, from barring. Um, Melanie Laurent and of course Christoph Waltz. Um, I don't think anyone else in this film um, carries the uh, the movie the way the script does.
1: Mm, I would say to an extent Brad Pitt, but mm. maybe I'm just being partial to the fact that he's it's Brad Pitt. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel there's a great actor underneath all of the the whole attention he gets for his looks. Uh, but yeah for the most part you're right like there isn't a single bad performance or I-, I would say there isn't a single bad character in the movie that does not necessarily mean that everyone's given really good performances across the board mm-hmm. a lot of it does come down to the script but yeah uh, a few standouts i think a good example of that would be diane kruger
0: mm-hmm.
1: run-of-the-mill performance nothing exactly out of the ordinary but uh character is memorable because her lines and the the the, the path her character takes through the script is is very enjoyable mm-hmm. but um but yeah like like you mentioned a few of the performances that we definitely need to highlight uh at least two of them melanie melanie laurent as uh shoshana and mm. and uh, Christopher
0: waltz uh as Karl hans lander so what we'll do is we'll get to performances, but first let's talk about plot and the absurdity of it all and just how we get <laughs> to where we do end up getting to. So mainly mm-hmm. Laran's character, okay, by the way, spoilers for Inglois Bastards. Uh, we'll try and keep this. So I'll give you, we'll try and make discuss the plot for about the next couple of minutes in a completely spoiler-free way, and then we'll jump straight into spoilers. So for those of you who are willing, who are, haven't seen the film? First of all, why? Like, why? <laughs> Just go watch it. It's like available on all streaming platforms. Just go away. Uh, <laughs> my father hasn't finished it, Pa. I know you listen to this podcast on occasion. Please go watch the movie. He reached back out after uh, the Shahrukh Khan episode, saying there is no Shahrukh Khan movie called Trishul, and I was like. Yeah, it's the isn't it? He's like, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: he's
0: so he's been checking these episodes wherever he finds himself that he he finds like a place that he thinks he can connect with. He'll try and listen to an episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> two, there are two plot lines running in parallel to the film. Um, one is so mm-hmm. so Shana escapes a harrowing incident on a farm, which we'll discuss in a bit and then sets up a theater in Paris. There she runs into a war hero, a decorated war hero named Frederick Sola, who instantly falls for her and then tells her that he's about to become a movie star because something he did in real life is about to be put into real life. Uh, He's now the star of this Nazi propaganda film called Nations Pride that is releasing um, uh, across Europe... Um, to celebrate his achievements. And he's, he's been cast in the lead. Little known fact, Nation's Pride is actually directed by Eli Roth. If you want to go. (laughs) As in the movie, in the movie. The movie in the movie is directed by Eli Roth. So, um, that's a little bit, that's a small bit of trivia for, uh, for our listeners. And, he insists on, trying to have the premiere at, um, at Sushana's theater. Now, the so he goes up to, to Gabels, and I had no idea Gabels was this involved with,
1: um, with the film industry. Yeah, I mean, he was also the propaganda minister, and right? I think a big part of the propaganda that the Nazi party put out was through their movies. So, mm. I mean, right from, I think, 1933, since the Nazi party took over up mm. until the end, he, he pretty much oversaw most of the output of the German film industry. Hmm. So, yeah, I, that
0: that was something I, I'll definitely learn because uh, I ne- would never associate Goebbels to be part of the uh, um, of the film fraternity, so to so to speak. So, and Goebbels agrees to screen the film in in,
1: in the theater. And he's then, the, sorry, he's the one who found Lenny Reif in style, by in way. He hmm. sort hmm. of discovered her, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, or at least he heavily promoted her because hmm. he found her style of filmmaking. Very suited for the sort of larger-than-life heavenly image of the Nazi party and uh, proceedings that he wanted to kind of portray. Interesting. Sorry, now no, yeah, but yeah, give,
0: give a little bit of uh I mean you and I who know who Lenny Reifenstahl is, but the listeners know. Oh yeah, money. sorry. <laughs> so uh Lenny
1: Reifenstahl was this uh, German director from the 30s and 40s. Um her most famous work, probably, of course, uh, apart from Triumph of Will, which was an out-and-out Nazi propaganda movie around the Nuremberg, uh, nineteen thirty-five Nuremberg, mm. whole shebang that the Nazi mm. Party had there. She also directed. I don't know how you how it fits in this term. She directed the the coverage of the nineteen thirty-six Berlin mm. Olympics as well. She was also mm-hmm. a photographer, mm-hmm. director. Praised for her artistic style, but also criticized. For the fact that she used her uh, artistry for hmm. these purposes. But yeah,
0: that was any life in
1: style. Yeah, okay. And
0: the other person that they've named in this movie is Emil Jannings. First person to ever win an Oscar.
1: And yeah, 1927 the- Wings. The first Oscars mm-hmm. were in 28. So hmm. he won it in 28 for a movie hmm. in 27. In 27. In
0: 27. And-, yeah. and then became the poster boy for Nazi propaganda films. In the thirties, yeah. which was uh, I don't know, maybe he migrated to Canada at the end of his career, who knows <laughs> uh, <laughs> always had had to sneak that one in there uh but yeah, but okay, now, coming back to the story is so gabels decides to host the premiere uh, at, at the theater invites all uh the all the top leadership of the of the third Reich. And the American intelligence gets a wind of it. They're not unsure at this time whether Hitler will be attending. Uh, it gets confirmed to them that he will. Um, and they decide to send the bastards in to, um, to take him out, and as well mm-hmm. as the other members of, uh, of the leadership. And meanwhile, Susana is plotting her own revenge uh, tale in, and wants to burn the entire theater down with um, several members of the Nazi party in there. And just because of what happened to her uh, as a child on that farm. So these two <laughs> these two plots meet in astounding fashion in that little theater in the climax. And if you don't want to know what's about to happen, I'd say skip about 10 minutes uh, from where we currently are. I think we are about 25 to 28 minutes in, but I skipped about 38 minutes because now we're about to jump into spoilers. And then we'll go into performances where we'll try and keep it as spoiler-free as possible. So, spoiler time. Hitler Hitler dies. (laughs) 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 Yeah, Uh Hitler dies. And he doesn't die in a bunker. He dies in a theater where he gets yeah. absolutely
1: shot to pieces and then burnt. <laughs> he is given the Swiss cheese treatment. <laughs> just, so. But um, I think that that's a quick point here. I don't mm. know how quick the point you want to make here. Uh, Tarantino gives zero fucks about uh, historical accuracy. Mm. Um, we've seen enough and more movies uh, where there are plots hatched to take Hitler down and they come ever so close and you just you're just your seats edge wondering whether this time mm. the the hardy fucker will die mm. but uh, he always makes a miraculous escape because that's history right mm. you know hitler mm. took his own life and mm. was know like fuck that hitler's <laughs> going to die in my theater tonight he's going to be riddled <laughs> with bullets to the point where he's not his body is not even recognizable uh, yeah it's not even holding <laughs> form anymore it's a paste and um, <laughs> And in fact, the fact that uh, Tarantino has such little regard for history also kind of that knowledge is something you take with you when you watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is Mm -hmm. why when you know what the movie is about, I kind of expected, okay, that he's going to do something. He's going to fuck around in some way. (laughs) here.
0: Like when initial reviews for that (sighs) movie dropped... uh... I was like They said oh wait The climax is something else And I was like Oh I not know exactly What he's going to do And it becomes Very self-referential Because there literally Is before it cuts The climax kicks off There is a It cuts to A shot of the porch And there's a TV in, Inside the Inside the house That says And now It's, it's the time You've been waiting for Yeah uh, and So it's just like Okay so we know Where this movie Is about to go And they, there's a There's a gag In that movie Which they bring back uh right at the start and i never thought it would make a comeback but when it makes a comeback in the climax I was, and it's a throwaway like scene in the in the start of the film i'm like why is this even here little did i know and then yeah. it come back in the end i was like oh wow well well played absolutely well played um but yeah but let's get back to um uh get back to ingloris so so all of this happens uh, like and so Hitler gets absolutely riddled with bullets, and this only happens because Hans Lander, who is played by Christoph Hals um agrees i mean rather agrees to a deal with the Americans uh, that ensures his own safety. So Hans Lander is um what the Nazis in the film call a, a rat catcher. He's sent in to go find uh, Jews and bring them to camps and absolute worst of the worst human beings. Now, this was um, and when, when he catches wind of, <laughs> of the bastards in the theater and the bastards are in the theater posing as a film crew, uh, the worst Italian film crew ever. Uh, and they get invited to the premiere along with Diane Kruger after a rendezvous in a bar in a basement <laughs> goes horribly wrong. Like horribly, horribly wrong. Just like any Tarantino film uh, would. like. It's, it starts off fun and interesting and there's, there are actual conversations about life and then suddenly people are shooting each other in the balls and Bad Pit is talking about Mexican standoffs. It's just, uh, it's a whole, uh, that is that sequence could have been a movie. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's There's so much uh, happening in, in those 20 minutes. And then, um, yeah. So uh, Landa agrees, and then gets taken into American custody. Where he, he, I mean, they do the rightful thing. They they exchange him. Uh, they they send him over the uh, over the borders, and then um, Brad Pitt agrees. Brad Pitt shoots his handler, carves the swastika into his head because that's what they do to all Nazi soldiers who say they're going to give up the uniform. Just to let the world know that these guys have been Nazis at some point and
1: that's yeah. something they yeah. never they want them to make be. sure they never stop being a Nazi. Yeah. Yeah, never never so, yeah. uh, get away with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, so that's on the side of the bastards over on this side. Shoshana also manages to get her revenge in because even if the bastards hadn't made it into the theater with their guns and even if they had not been able to um, shoot Hitler the way they did uh, Shoshana's plan to trap everyone inside the theater and then uh, make it go up in flames. So what she does is she takes this pile of uh, film, reels. Film, which, film reels which at the time was made of nitrous, some, some nitric compound which is really uh, highly flammable. So she shoots a bunch of, uh, basically a home video uh, uh, where she uh, talks about how this she is the face of Jewish revenge and tells them how they're pretty much fucked. So, but at the, at that time, uh, her accomplice and lover is closing the, the doors to the theater so that no one can get out and she sets the reel on fire. So, the theater is anyway going to burn down. All of those people are anyway going to die. Mm-hmm. In typical Tarantino fashion, the bastards at this point are overkill just to sort of, it's like double tap from land no, just Zombieland. to make sure. Just to make sure <laughs> he's dead. It loves yeah. dead. Is he dead? He Shoot him more.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> so, I remember watching that sequence and I was like, no, no fucking way. Are you serious? Wait, what? And like, is my, is the printer for the camera, for the film I have that bad? What, what just happened? Rewind. And I burst out laughing. I was like, oh wow, you've got me. Like you have completely got me with this film. Yeah.
1: That that was uh, the jaw-dropping moment, but also a testament to the how strong and how impactful Hans Landa's character is. That yeah. even after the fact that literally Hitler <laughs> died on screen, <laughs> hmm. uh, you're still thinking about. Okay, that's fine, but hmm. what is happening with Hans Landa? Where is that for? Yeah,
0: where is yeah. that for? So, so, so the story behind casting Hans Landa, and I think we'll get to. We have to talk about him right now and the opening sequence is that Pantio wrote the role and realized, oh, I have to find somebody who has to be fluent in English, French, German, and Italian and must be capable of giving out a performance in all four languages. Um, And he almost didn't make the film because he couldn't find somebody who who fit that role. And then Eli Roth said, oh, Christoph Waltz. I think Christoph Waltz is in Hostel or he has a guest role in Hostel somewhere. Mm -hmm. And... and, um, I, I could be wrong. I'm, I'm, I think he's in it, but but there was a recommendation that oh, you check out this Austrian guy who's capable of um, speaking all, all four, or five language, all four or five languages, and he they screen tested him.
1: Quite ominous words, by the way. Check out this Austrian guy. I'm sure somebody said that about Hitler also way back. And then somebody said that about uh, said that in the
0: eighties as well, but that worked out well, no? Yeah. <laughs> that, that went well <laughs> he came back multiple times yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway but
1: uh,
0: Austrians aside so I, I love how we've gone from Hitler to Schwarzenegger to Christoph Waltz nice it's
1: literally <laughs> the only thing in common that three of them
0: have have <laughs> yeah and uh, and then Waltz comes in, blows uh, Tarantino's socks off, and then they cast him in the role. And then he opens the film. He uh, opens the
1: yeah, film. Yeah, let's talk about it.
0: Yeah, and he and some Nazi troops end up going into a farm to search for to question a farmer uh, who's been suspected of hiding Jews. And the, and this is how the film opens, right? So. Like you can, there's a bit of tension in the air because obviously this is a questioning, but it's not, it it doesn't go the way you think it goes. It actually starts off over a glass of milk and then it switches between, it starts off.
1: Like a PTA meeting.
0: Yeah, like, but there are three languages at play because I think he goes from French to German and then, or German to French and then French to English. Um, And all through the while you were completely captivated. And I did not know this, but the West has a problem with subtitles. And um, for me, and that's a, a completely alien concept to me, because I have always watched a film with subtitles because I want to know what I want to keep an eye out mm. for every detail. But the West has a and like there are separate screenings here if you want to watch a film with subtitles. And I was just like, wow, that absolutely blows my mind. I mean, English subtitles
1: or even German and
0: French? English subtitles. Just
1: generally, they don't like reading
0: stuff on screen, which is why so many people have, I I don't get it. I I tried pitching, until Parasite at least. I was like, guys, have you watched this great film called Memories of Murder? Mm. Uh, And they're like, oh, no, it's got subtitles. I'm like, listen, just watch it. (laughs) It's one of the best films I've ever seen. And what... I think Squid Game now has changed the game for a lot of people because it's Mm. the number one show in the world. And unless you're watching it in the dub, which
1: is laughably horrible, yeah, Yeah. you tried watching it on the dub, yeah. Because Poonam was like, I don't want to, I don't want to read something.
0: Wow, (laughs) Poonam, did you finish the whole thing on the dub? Yeah. Wow, how are you doing this?
1: My heart would bleed. I know, I'll, I'll watch it the original video another time. Uh, <laughs> I mean, separate episode, but yeah, I mean, it's a good show. It, it's not my, it's not path-breaking. Anyways, that's, that's yeah. just how I feel. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a fun show
0: at the most. It's a, and it's like one lawsuit, one, uh, what do you call, one symbol away from a lawsuit from Sony is, is how yeah. I put it. <laughs> and um and so but anyway but, but back to so I, I didn't realize like the issue with side and so i was generally very uh, so you're just completely riveted with, with what's happening on screen and it becomes initially you're like oh these guys are just having a conversation and then you realize landa is lulling him into a false sense of security and then drops the mother load on him and all this while we see the jewish family hiding underneath the floorboards and yeah, and we're like, oh, oh shit! And then when he does pull it out of it, when he breaks him down, doesn't touch him, when he break
1: like just verbally yeah, breaks it's just him psychological down. Psychological barrage. Yeah,
0: breaks him down, reduces him to tears, and then gets the gets the truth out of him. And you see the farmer break down, and then and he's just. It is such a powerful sequence. At that point, I was like, if this man doesn't win the Oscar for N, like, doesn't win all the awards just for this one 20-minute sequence alone. Yeah. I I don't quite understand what anyone else's, uh, what the reasoning behind that would, would probably be. Because he carries that through the film. Like, he appears in, every time he appears in the movie, you are physically uncomfortable because... There are times Sushant runs into him in a restaurant when she's, where she's discussing the film with Gabels, like the, the screening the film with Gabels, And there, it's tense. And uh, the Bridget Von Hammersmark sequence, uh, when he runs into the, the bastards in, in the theatre, it's tense. The Diane Kruger sequence is tense.
1: Uh, the negotiation sequence,
0: like every uh, he, he, every time he's on screen, I you're think, uneasy.
1: Uh, a, a lot of that has to do with how he's set up in the first scene. Mm-hmm. Um one obviously I think Christoph Waltz and Hans Landa is like this cosmic level coincidence of the perfect person for the perfect role. Mm-hmm. Uh very rarely do you see two entities so made made for each other. Uh but also in that first scene, like you said, right, he has this sort of polite, quiet menace to him. Mm-hmm. You can see he's talking um very nicely, very politely, very sweetly to you. And he has a, he in fact has a, like you said, for the first half of the scene, he has a smile on his face, Mm -hmm. but not consciously, subconsciously, there's something telling you there is something really wrong here. Mm -hmm. And um, when there is that moment, when there's that flip he does from being the nice guy to really uh, turning the table on the farmer and kind of bringing him down to tears, you see that subconscious feeling getting validated Mm
0: -hmm. and then
1: Psychologically, this is a lesson you've learned in the course of watching the movie, and you retain that lesson in your memory, which is why even every subsequent time when Landa comes on screen, your subconscious is again screaming at you, "Fuck, fuck, fuck! What's gonna happen?" Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. a big reason why every time he's on screen, I'm just like mm, I'm, just feeling mm-hmm. like, "Oh, where is this going? What's gonna happen?" And cinematically, what an amazing emotion to evoke in your audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, that. I think hats off to both Waltz and Tarantino for pulling that off, mm-hmm. and um, especially that first scene. I, I don't recall the the YouTube channel that has the video, but uh, mm-hmm. there's a fairly detailed video that breaks down the first uh, that opening scene, and they talk about how how the interplay between the characters is, what is the subtext, what is going on beyond just the dialogue. And uh, in fact, that kind of spurred me on to read the screenplay for *Inglorious Bastards*, at least yeah. the first scene, the the pages mm-hmm. for the first scene. And what really stuck to me was, for most part, for the most part, all screenplays focus on the dialogue, and there is some bit of context setting, etc. So you can sort of envision the the setting of the scene. But uh, Tarantino's writing of this scene really goes into individual actions of the character. Uh, If somebody at the background is feeling uncomfortable or if they're even shuffling a little, moving their position, he's noted on the minutiae of all aspects of all characters in the scene. He's really painted a very vivid picture. Clearly, this scene sort of, I think, walked into his mind fully formed and fully crystallized. And Hmm. he's really brought that to life. And that sort of detail really helps uh, make the scene very layered. There's mm-hmm. so much to unpack in that scene. I mean, I, mean, well, yeah. I can keep talking
0: yeah, about we, it for yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we can. And I think that's maybe we'll, we'll probably discuss it with somebody. I think we'll sit down. That's a different episode by itself. Our favorite scenes from films, like things that have mm-hmm. stood out. And this definitely is one of them. Uh, but yeah, I think closing thoughts. We'll go on to closing thoughts and then quickly jump on to hateful eight. Uh, yeah. Inglourish is... Possibly my favorite talent team of film. I made a friend watch it who hadn't seen it last, like about a year and a half ago. And he's like, hey man, what is this movie? I don't want to check it out. And then no, that's what he said really, No, no, no. Oh, he man. was like, hey, he was that's what he was like, I don't know. This is too wordy for me. So what he said in the first five minutes. And then in by the eighth minute, he was like, Oh fuck. And then he was in. And he's like, dude, this is the best shit ever. Uh, yeah. and so that's and he knows who he is he listens to the podcast so um anyway one of my so yeah closing thoughts my one of my favorite Tarantino films possibly my favorite Tarantino film uh nothing comes close and he i think it's probably Tarantino's favorite film himself because at the end of the movie Brad Pitt looks into the camera and says well this may finally just this may just be my masterpiece very self referential and i honestly think you should have won uh, I think the Hurt Locker won at that year, right? 2009. Hurt Locker
1: would be two thousand nine.
0: Yeah, mm, but maybe it's a yeah. Catherine yeah, Biglow di- Biglow so. won Best Director, but I don't know. I feel that the legacy of English Bastards is sustained more than the Hurt Locker. I would agree. I would say
1: yeah. Hurt Locker. Um,
0: yeah, the funny thing about it is like Catherine Biglow. <laughs> I mean, for better or worse, will always be remembered for Point Break which in itself is an extremely fun film. Uh, yeah, it's Ken Reeves and, Pat- and Patrick Swayze. It's about surfers who want to be bank robbers. And it just... like course, that's why yeah. not?
1: Don't let your dreams be dreams. Be dreams, yeah.
0: <laughs> but one of the best action movies ever made. Like, such, such a fun ride. Um, mm. But, yeah, now, shall we jump on to Hit-flate? Yes. So now yeah. we're into the second half of our episode And the second film that we're talking about today it is the movie that came Two movies This is the, this. is the second of the two films that he directed after Inglourious Bastards uh, There was Django Unchained in the middle Which I think suffers because Inglourious Bastards is so good I think mm. Django is in itself a good movie I don't think it's a great movie I feel it could have Like the climax I have
1: yeah. It is a potentially yeah. great movie, let down by its last 40 odd minutes, which were yeah. completely unnecessary.
0: Yeah, it was this it is had, revenge porn. Yeah, it had an interesting plot. It had some excellent characters, uh, some probably a career best performance by Leo DiCaprio. If anything, he he should have won for that and not for sleeping inside a, a horse that he a bear. bear Horse bears. Yeah. 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 Sorry, Leo. But Luke did it first. Um, and <laughs> but anyway, back to the point. So the hateful eight came out in 2015, directed by Tarantino. Stars Kurt Russell, Jennifer Jason Lee, Sam Jackson, uh, Walton Goggins. Um, Bill, um, what, what, Madsen? fuck Oh, my, Michael Mattson, Michael Mattson, yeah. Bruce Stern, uh, Bruce Stern, Michael Matson, uh, Tim Roth. I feel like this is, this is the greatest hits of Tarantino's casting because, uh, yeah, if I think even if Michael Matson never does another like film in his life, he will somehow get roped back into a Tarantino future because Tarantino like, absolutely
1: loves him. There's like Bud Dial casting. Yeah, Sanitino <laughs> sat on his phone, all his <laughs> contacts got a call. It's like, okay, cool, we're doing a movie together now.
0: <laughs> Canning Tatum is also in this movie for a hot minute. Yeah, uh, and but the best, of the 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 film's is USP is its score. Uh, Any Morricone
1: Any more And we it one him... about roping in the big guns, right? <laughs> big guns. Yeah, I'm gonna make a western. Who am Who am I gonna call? Fucking any Morricone, oh, 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 fuck Mr. Western himself.
0: Himself. And he won the score for he won the Oscar for the hateful eight, and which is in yeah. my opinion criminal. Because I'm like, wow, this man has literally made three of the best <laughs> Western soundtracks <laughs> of all time. I
1: think at that point the Academy realized, oh my god, he's oh god, still he's alive.
0: alive. <laughs> Give him the Oscar
1: before he dies.
0: And then he came on and he was so emotional and he was like. He, he was so happy uh, I just I, and I don't think a lot of us would have discovered Enyo Morricone if it weren't obviously for the good bad and the ugly and uh, and Metallica so mm. uh, Meta- yeah Metallica concert was always open with the ecstasy of gold so Enyo Morricone was I think his, dude I can't even say his, his legacy sustains fucking Enyo Morricone the greatest one of the, the most legendary music composers to have ever lived yeah. Uh, but yeah score composed by him and you can tell it's a Morricone score right
1: in the opening bit where exactly the first yeah. note I just like I yeah, remember like, uh, 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 reading about the fact that he had given the score and when I first watched it the scene opens and the music hits I'm just like yes it is Morricone <laughs> it was beautiful
0: so the plot of this film the plot is just fairly straightforward there's there's a guy called John Ruth otherwise known as the hangman who is Escorting a fugitive uh, to to, a, to Red Rock to hand her over to the Sheriff's Department, and on the way they meet another bounty hunter, and Sam Draxon and uh, and another man who claims to be the Sheriff of Red Rock, uh, played by Walton Goggins, mm. and then they get caught in a blizzard, uh, which uh, leads them into a little haberdashery. mini's Haberdashery, which is like a, a small little stop along the way for for travelers. And where they run into four other people. And then as the night progresses, you realize not everyone is who they say they are. Uh, and that is how the film takes off. Like, yeah. And a lot of people have accused this movie of being overindulgent, of being too much... Um, I mean too long. I mean, because my I remember I took my mother for this and she fell asleep and she hated has hated me for it ever since. Uh but I I for one completely enjoy this film. I think everyone in this movie is giving great performances. I think the writing is obviously spectacular. The setting is is wonderful because like we've discussed earlier on in this episode. I we're a big we big fans of contained uh contain space dramas and this is right up there for me. I thought it was excellent. I think Sam Jackson and Walton Goggins carry the movie at certain times. They are riveting to watch, like especially Sam Jackson's monologue to Bruce Dern. Uh, yeah. oh my is, god. Is absolutely terrifying, but um, it's, it's wonderful. I think it's set just after the Confederate War. Is that the right term? I was gonna say civil I, war. Civil war, I would say. No, right? I'm sorry. I say the yeah, I, I think era. it's
1: the late 1870s. So mm-hmm. maybe all a few years. Mm-hmm. Like what? 69 was when the I don't know my U.S. Mm-hmm. history, but yeah, a, a little under a decade after the end of the civil war. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, back then, ten years. Back then, were like a year now. Because yeah. things moved slowly, right? Slowly, so right, exactly. People were yeah. still making their way back to their hometowns and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. a lot of, you see a confederate general in, in the character that Bruce Dern plays. And mm-hmm. in fact, I think even Walton Goggins is a, is an ex-confederate soldier, what they call mm-hmm. a lost causer. Mm-hmm. So uh, so you have, it, it is... Explain what a lost causer is. Yeah, so a lost causer is somebody who believes that the confederates uh, were not fighting for the right... To retain the concept of slavery, but because they wanted to retain their southern way of living, something like that. Mm-hmm. That, that was my understanding of it. I mean, it's, it's in the words of uh, Kurt Russell's character, John Ward, John Ruth. Yeah, in in the words of John Ruth, that all of that just sounds like horseshit to me. Mm. because I think that's his favorite cuss word in the movie anything happens John, John's like horse shit that's horse shit <laughs> <laughs> that, that's something I distinctly remember from the movie so yeah that, that's what a lost cause there is so it is set against the backdrop of an erstwhile civil war mm. things are still people are still uh, dealing with the uh, fallout of it and uh, like you said I think they've it's it's done a really good job of uh, evoking that time uh, that era and uh, in set design in the way people talk and the way people dress uh, and yes, uh, I think contained space movies are a great concept because obviously the producer is going to be really happy because yeah. uh, <laughs> everything is really cheap shot, yeah. to make mm-hmm. but uh, it's a great challenge in uh, from a narrative and writing perspective because how do you continue to retain your viewers attention when you don't have much to play with visually, Mm -hmm. then it it really is the meat and bones of of your script that really has to sustain the movie, which is daunting, but also equal parts exciting. And there's in the right hands, uh, when done well, there are a handful of movies which do pull it off when Mm -hmm. done well. It's a very satisfying experience. is definitely one among them. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you said, there's a lot to like about the movie. Great dialogue, great performances. Um, I particularly enjoyed, obviously, Sam Jackson. I think this was the breakout role that Walton Goggins deserved. Yes. Cruelly late, cruelly late in his career. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's somebody, I think I first noticed Walton Goggins when I watched The Shield Mm. around 2009-2010. At which point it was already known to be a, a classic uh, TV show. And mm. uh, even back then I was like, how is this guy not more famous? Mm. And and I recall somebody told me he was there in Justified as well. I haven't watched much of Justified. Neither, I, neither I've, I've watched a few episodes where he is front and center again. With whatever little context I had of the show. He's Whenever he's on screen, he's so eminently watchable. He... Uh, He's so natural. You don't feel like he's acting. And uh, seeing him get, get the light of day that, in this movie that he deserved was very satisfying. Mm. So yeah, again, there's a whole host of people putting in really good performances. I partic- I don't particularly like Kurt Russell. Mm-hmm. I don't think he, he he was a bit jarring in the movie. But mm-hmm. Jennifer Jason Lee and Walton Goggins were the standouts. Like mm-hmm. Great, great performances from them.
0: You Tim Roth for 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 whatever little, he's a very understated performance here, and we're, and yeah. the quintessential Tim Roth Tarantino performance is is the Honey Bunny role from um, from Power yeah. Fiction, right? So um, he also like gives a a, a very um, a, a very nice performance, and Channing Tatum for whatever long I would have never pictured Channing Tatum in a Tarantino film. I don't know how that happened. Yeah, but it does
1: would never um, have.
0: Mm. And was the, yeah and uh but he he he's good too, in his own in his own way, like in his own challenging datum way, uh but yeah, once again, the strength, like most kind films lies in its writing, lies in its pacing um people have complained about the pacing, I think the pacing is perfectly fine, I think, um yes, okay, if there is a complaint to be had, the first twenty minutes could have been a little bit quicker like I feel. The conversations in the carriage, and this whole thing about letters from Abraham Lincoln—that uh, yeah. is, uh, uh, you know, that 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 whole that that trope carries through the film. I wouldn't say. It I would mean, it, it does. Is it does make <laughs> a comeback?
1: Comeback. They yeah. They do refer refer to it right at the end as well. <laughs> I'd say it's a narrative flourish—a well, yeah. bit of or narrative indulgence, more like. Mm-hmm. Even if you take it away, it doesn't take away from the movie. But yeah, it would definitely make for a more crisper viewing experience, but I didn't mind it. Like I I have done I have done much worse things with twenty minutes, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> <sighs> okay then. <laughs> I really like how this movie ends dude. I love the the final song yeah. that they play with the credits uh, Roy Orbison's uh, won't be coming home uh and the and Tarantino made Pete travers sing the song with him while uh, during an interview and that's like the first <laughs> one of the few things that stick out uh, don't okay good, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but also like we uh I don't think a lot of people have seen this movie, and I think this is just generally for one of those those purists. So I won't don't think we should spoil yeah, it. I because... don't know.
1: I don't know why because mm. it's just one why of those. Did it fly under the radar, or did it not appeal to? A, was it not as broad based as the other movies, or did they not market it as much? I don't know.
0: I, I don't think contained space films work as well because I was like, oh, it's just people talking. Why would I want to watch a movie with people talking? I can sit in the house and listen to people talk, uh, and which is, I mean. I should Complaint I understand. But yeah, the it it's very much targeted towards the film film audience. And this was supposed to be his last film. He said he was retiring after it, uh, which I feel is total bullshit. And now he said yeah, the same thing after once. Yeah, uh, the same said the same thing about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He's not retiring. I think he's gone to pre-production on his next film.
1: See dude He's um, also edging only.
0: Yeah. He's or the said about mm. it's like somebody keeps waving feet at him and be like one more, one more, one more. And it's like yes for you. How many ever?
1: Uh, yeah, but for H- it does not have a feet fetish scene. Mm. That not that I remember.
0: somebody in the in in the in the editing room was to be like no Quentin, no, we can't put this in the movie. Like why is there a foot scene? He's like but no, it's important. You, you see it's And then yeah. It's, <laughs> I think uh, Sally Manka, who mm, uh, I remember Fala, a friend of mine who said ever since Sally Manka passed away his editor um, he stopped like his films started to get a lot more um, loose as in they aren't tighter they aren't like English was the last tight film and then from Django onwards you feel the film start to sag and I think the hateful hate in some parts is guilty of sagging
1: there was that person that was reining his more fanciful tendencies in was not there anymore.
0: Mm, yeah, exactly. So, and I feel like every good film director needs a good film editor. Like most, yeah. like if you look at the combos, you have mm-hmm. Scott and Shoemaker. The Shun really Maker. great ones, exactly. The great yeah. ones always
1: have somebody they always own. Yeah,
0: good. yeah. And um, I mean, I love Shoemaker, but um, she does not work well with Anurag Kashyap. <laughs> Uh, because what did she
1: work on uh,
0: uh, Bombay Velvet oh I mean is that, that no. her fault <laughs> I mean it's it, it's a, it was a four and a half hour long movie which they brought, cut down to two and a half hours I don't think Shoemaker is who you go to for brevity <laughs> no, I don't
1: yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like uh, uh Scorsese is making tight 90 minute uh, thrillers that you know yeah, yeah. They make for a breezy afternoon <laughs>
0: I mean, I think Goodfellas is a breezy watch. It just, like, flies by.
1: That's more to do with the script, I feel. It's a very yeah. enjoyable story. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, I think the the really great directors do tend to indulge themselves a bit. And they know they can get away with it a little bit mm. because of how good their uh, work is. Hit mm-hmm. 8 is probably, like you said, Tarantino's most indulgent work. Again, I think Once Upon a Time is a close second. Uh, Eight for it is just him taking things at his pace. Mm. He's and again, I think similar to Django, the the timeline of the setting gives him free license to use the N word, and he's taken he's yeah. made liberal use of it. Like,
0: uh, oh and yeah, and he just like and Sam Jackson is still in his corner saying no, he's a good dude. Like, and so I, as long as he's got Sam Jackson on his side, I think he's going to be insulated from all the abuse because it's just. Uh, and no i mean even he uses it even in the pulp fiction uh, in pulp fiction right like which at the time was like what but is it's i mean nobody batted an eyelid back then i mean i'm, I'm not quite sure maybe they did uh, but now in this day and age you can't go around saying uh, shit like that
1: yeah uh but uh, this one uh, complaint i have uh um, in a sequence from the movie, or about a sequence from the movie, which is immersion-breaking for me, and is a is probably the only complaint I have with Tarantino is that. So in in this case, I'm talking about the scene where, again, I won't spoil it, but a lot of people projectile vomit. Hmm. To and the way they do it is so unrealistically gory. Like, I don't know why violence and gore in Tarantino movies have to be so gratuitous to the point where it's clearly unrealistic and it takes you out of the movie, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's my only, that's the only part of the movie I didn't like. Uh, rather than that, surprisingly, the movie has, uh, doesn't have as much of a rating uh, as other movies of his. It's only mm-hmm. 74%. Mm-hmm. I say only 74, 75% because mm-hmm. for Tarantino, that is on the lower side. Mm. Uh, I guess a lot of it also had to do with the fact that there was some criticism the movie faced upon release on the violent treatment of its female characters, Yeah. which uh, when you see the climax of the movie is not unwarranted, mm. but also a bit excessive. Uh, it is a, it is a bit excessive, no doubt. Mm. I think excessive mm. violence is par for the course is something you expect in a Tarantino movie, mm. but um, to his defense or in his defense, I'm, I'm amazed that I'm finding myself saying this, Mm. Uh you do root for the character of Jennifer Jason Lee, Daisy mm. Domerk, I think. Yeah, you uh, do Daisy J- you do, Domergue. Domergue. You do yeah. root for her to get the treatment she does because she's such a despicable character in the movie. Mm. So for me, that criticism felt a little unwarranted. Mm. Uh, I would have cheered just as loud if her character was male and did mm. the actions that the character did. Mm. Um, I think that's that, and the fact that it's it's a single whatever closed space movie is what maybe made it a little less palatable for the other moviegoers, and maybe that's the reason it didn't do as well as it did. But 100%, everyone should give it a shot, give it a watch if you have two and a half, three hours. It's not a short movie by any means. Yeah, so it's if you want, you can listen to it episodically
0: because it's, I think in the US it's available on Netflix that way. And yeah, check out the films. Let us know your thoughts. If you've liked them both, uh, like we, have, we now have a space for you to let us know what you'd like us to talk about. And uh, if you're on Spotify, please do take part in the polls, leave us suggestions, all the good stuff, because we'd love to hear from our listeners. Because there are points where, like, who's listening to us? And then somebody comes back and is like, hey, I'm listening to you. And that really makes our day. So, yeah. Um, you know, so please, by all means, uh, let us know what, what you think, let us know what you'd like, uh, like to hear, and we should do the needful. And that brings Splendid. us what do the needful? Do the needful that is so true. And for I am deeply connected your, to my roots,
1: you with your Milton bottles,
0: my Milton bottles, and my uh prestige pressure cookers. So <laughs> <laughs> uh but okay that's an end to this week's episode do we know what we're talking about next week nope (laughs) (laughs) anyway that's us we'll see you on the next one take care bye-bye
1: so they opened their big mouths and out came
0: talk talk talk